Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I think I need to ask, how are you? I I just realized before we started that I haven't, I didn't study the ad. I was so determined to study the ad before the ad read, so I wasn't nervous. And now I'm even more nervous than normal. <laughs> you, need, you need to study the ad and watch her, uh, and then and then you'll be set. Actually, after after this week, did you you saw the Google Duplex demo, right? It was insane. As we say that, my echo just lit up, and I was terrified it was about to say something. But no, it was insane. That was absolutely crazy. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> see, you need to watch her. Uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was certainly something else. Uh, do you, are you bothered by the fact it didn't identify itself as as a as a bot? No, I was not actually. It was. I mean, it's interesting because I can certainly see both sides of the argument. I think folks mm. that were a little over the top about what a terrible ethical lapse this was. Uh, it seemed a little. I, I I can understand that point of view. Uh, I'm not sure it's 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 that cut and dry. But uh, I don't know. We're not we're not gonna we're not gonna have that debate here. Although we just probably just generated like 15 emails. With, with, yeah. With well, opening. I look forward to reading them. You know, the other thing is it's it's still very far. It's still very far away. I think um, we'll see what sort of the feedback is and if if they sort of adjust their response. But you know, and, and I think folks didn't realize like there are only focusing for now when it watches. I think they're going to watch only like asking businesses what hours of operation are, and Google's mm. going to run it themselves to update Google Maps. And then they're working on on haircuts and restaurant reservations, and that's it. It's not like a general sort of like talking assistant. That's why the basic assistant is still you know it's it's improved, but it's not it's not this level. Like there's a lot that goes into this. It was for me, I think this IO was for me the point at which you could really start to see how the integration down into machine learning is going to give them an edge as opposed to integrating on the device side and focusing that as the basis of competition. I was like, oh, wow, this is where it starts to get interesting for Apple. This is an area where Google could really start to pull ahead. Yeah, well, let's let's first thank WordPress.com for sponsoring Exponent as they do every week. Did you see how I alleviated your nervousness by talking about something mm, else first? I've totally forgot about it. Uh, w- what might you want to build on WordPress.com, James? Well, you know what I'd like to build? I'd like to build an AI that can talk to you. So when you <laughs> ask me about what's coming next on the ad, it's going to say, Ben, I have the answer. And I think the answer is either a personal blog, a business site, or both. 100, A plus, A plus. Whether you like to build a personal blog, a business site, or both, creating your website on WordPress.com helps others find you, remember you, and connect with you. You don't need experience. They guide you through the process from start to finish and take care of the technical side to get your site up and running. Their customer support team is made up of WordPress experts eager to help you get the most from your site, and they're available to help 24 by 7. That is a special call out to James getting the answer completely right. Mm. Uh, plans start at just $4 per month, and all plans include a custom domain name for the life of the plan. Go to WordPress.com slash exponent to get 50% of your website today. That's WordPress.com slash exponent. Just one, one other thing on, on the Google Duplex de- mm. do, uh, demo that I, that I think is interesting and very Google-like. And I didn't mention this uh, in my article, but you know, there's a, the, obviously the better solution is that all these companies should have their, their business digitized and they should have an online interface. And then like the whole question of a bot interacting with the human is a moot one because mm. you can just ask Google Assistant to schedule a haircut and it can interact with the system and it can, it, 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 it can do it. And I think this is something that I think we've mentioned in passing is, is actually, particularly in the tier one cities in China, is, is more possible in part because you know there, there was back when the Groupon craze was happening and there was like 47 clones that sprung up in China with all this 
VC money. They, they all went in and digitized all these businesses for them because they wanted to enable them to offer mm. coupons. And, and it, it really laid the groundwork for a lot of what you can do with WeChat and stuff in China, in part because all these companies already had sort of these small businesses, of the infrastructure already in place. And mm. and that's not necessarily ever been the case, you know, in the U.S. And, you know, if you're if you're a hair salon, particularly something like a hair salon or a restaurant where you're, you know, it's relatively short you know, your chances of success may be slim and go in and out of business, you know, to to ask them to make the sort of investment in in that technology. Yes, there's an obvious payoff, but you can understand why it's maybe not as, you know, why there still are a lot of businesses that 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 don't that don't have that. And, you know, from that perspective, you know, if you think about Google, you know, if they when they wanted to have every, you know, street view of every street in the world, what did they do? Uh, they hired a whole bunch of people or cars and then just drove them around the road until they got them all, right? That, exactly. And I think something that's underappreciated about Google is it's almost very Amazon-like that there are certain areas where they will just spend the money and brute force it. And, and you know, this comes up in the context of self-driving cars where the Google version of self-driving cars is much less reactive and much more – much less sort of like it's constantly – discovering its environment and having to make decisions where, you know, they're mostly only in Mountain View. Why? Because they have mapped every single detail of the area where the, mm. their self-driving cars go in, in a far more deeper level than sort of Google Street View. And people are like, oh, well, that means it's it's long away. You know, How is that going to scale? Well, it's going to scale by Google doing what they already did, which is drive up and down every single road where they want to deploy these cars and get all the data. And one, they're willing to make the investment to do that. And two, Google's approach has always sort of been to just sort of like it's almost a, a very simple approach. Like they're not going to be super smart. They're just going to get far more data than anyone else and leverage that amount of data to sort of make what seemed impossible possible. I thought you're actually going to uh, a very different place with this. And I was I was thinking about it in terms of starting to think of the telephone as just effectively like an API. And if business owners start getting these calls and they realize that they're actually computers, I wonder if there's not a, a business app that Google launches for its Android phones, which allows the same kind of thing to be done on the business side. So you answer a few quick questions about your business, you update your Yelp and your Google phone number, and then basic questions are actually handled by uh, by Google, your Android phone, answering the phone, doing all this machine learning, answering the questions. And maybe there's some high-pitched noise that allows these two things to identify that they're actually just talking to computers and it happens immediately. And and if there's a question that a consumer happens to ask where the, the phone doesn't know what's actually going on, it's the phone is just like, oh, that's a really good question. Can you hang on a second? Let me grab the person that can answer it for you. I, I like I started to see a world in which you're never really sure either on the consumer or the business side whether you're actually talking to a human or not. You know what's interesting too is I just realized that the example you have Google Maps might have been working in the exact opposite direction that I was thinking because there what I was thinking of was like, well, Google, how's Google getting around the sort of like a lot of businesses don't have computerized systems? Is mm. is they're just they're figuring out a way to even though like voice is super inefficient, they're figuring out a way to like do it anyway. But mm. you could argue that the equivalent to doing street view of all the maps would be to actually go around to every single business and give them a device that, mm. that, 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 that plugs into this so that the assistant could connect to it. And it could be a way to build, you know, very sort of deep moat with assistant and maps in general. And, and whereas the, the having an assistant that figures out how to talk to a human is kind of like the 
having a self-driving car that kind of figures out the road the first time it sees it. And mm-hmm. and yeah, so now I have my I had my I have my analogy all completely mixed up in my head. But it's 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 very interesting to sort of think about you know these. The, the the two approaches to overcoming a sort of collective action problem, which is like mm, how do you yeah. how do you get a lot of independent entities to all sort of do the right thing, and do you just become so smart that it doesn't matter, which is kind of the Google system approach, or do you sort of brute force it and just put in the legwork necessary to get it done, which is kind of the Google Maps approach, and and maybe mm. they're they are actually opposites. They're not they're not analogous. Now that I think about it, I want to go back to where you started though. It just is kind of mind-blowing and worth, worth stopping and thinking about the fact that we are going to, in the not-too-distant future, have devices in our pockets that are convincing enough to pass the Turing test in in kind of relatively random situations. Like listening to that 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 phone conversation with the appropriate ums and ahs that I know you're going to edit out of this podcast when I make them, but it, it just made it sound completely believable. It was, it was just crazy. Yeah, it really, it really was. And I think the ethical debate is interesting because on one hand you are deceiving someone. Uh, on the other hand, there's a sort of, you know, you could make the argument that for the person talking to the bot, it, it's almost more comforting to not know. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you just have a normal conversation, and that person went out their day without anything going on. Whereas, like, you're just a hi, I am a I, I I'm a bot. Can I have this appointment? It, it, it like it 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 sort of like upsets the entire premise, and and I, I don't know. And it, it's interesting because you can say, well, they should be upset, and we shouldn't be going this direction. But my point is, the sort of like the ethical and sort of philosophical argument about this i think goes many 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 layers deeper than it appears sort of on the surface yeah i i mean i would tend to agree with that i i am more of a pragmatic point of view this isn't like her from what i understand of the premise where you're <laughs> asking someone to, to marry it. It, it it's just you are having a conversation like this is an exchange of information we we put it in on websites uh i mean chatbots I don't, I don't know half the time whether I'm talking to a human or I'm talking to an AI. And honestly, when I type in, it doesn't really matter to me. Just help me do what I need to get done. And, and maybe that's where I start to draw the distinction, actually, where it's trying to perform a task versus the more emotional side where you're starting to build a relationship up. Like that's where I think it's more important for people that would, without thinking about it deeply, that's kind of where my line I think would be drawn. Well, and and the question is, I think you're mostly thinking about it from the consumer perspective who who Mm. is leveraging Google, Google assistant. And, and I guess I'm thinking about it from the, from the service worker perspective, the person actually answering the phone. I I mean, and it's, I think the, demonstration was probably a little dishonest in that what's what's more interesting is what happens when it fails like what what mm. what does that go what does that go down like and you know as long as it goes smoothly i mean the giving scheduling a haircut time or taking a restaurant reservation is a very sort of utilitarian exercise and frankly the person at the end of the phone wants to get off the phone as soon as possible and, and uh, on both sides of the phone actually and, and the you know so so that's why if it works well i guess i don't have a problem with it where i have more of a problem and concern i would say is when it doesn't go well. And then what mm. happens is the complexity and the frustration are basically being offloaded from the person requesting the reservation or re- 
question the haircut appointment onto the person receiving that phone call because they have to deal with a bot that's screwing up. And mm. that's I think that's where it gets much more problematic because, yeah, you're basically offloading complexity onto someone that with whom who's not being compensated for it. And and I think that is where it definitely gets a lot more problematic. Well, maybe that's true, but maybe this is the consumer's revenge on businesses because businesses have been forcing this on consumers for the longest period of time. The, the number of businesses I call up and and to be granted, granted, it's not normally small business, but the number of businesses I call up and what greets me is an automated system where I have to navigate it in the structure that the business lays out for me is a frustrating thing. And I think by and large, we've all we've all accepted that this is this is <laughs> Google's presenting an option for the consumer to save some time as opposed to just for the businesses to save some time and yeah there is a human cost that I agree should be considered and how it fails should be graceful and uh it it, it uh, completely agree but this idea that we're, we're turning the tables a little bit or or evening things out I kind of like it I think that that's a really good point and yeah the 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 fact that even companies that you pay, and often pay a lot of money to like force you to endure, you know, minutes long sort of phone trees is, is if you step back and think about it, pretty, you know, pretty outrageous. And, and, but the, the problem is, is yes, uh, consumers are getting their revenge, but to your point, you kind of mentioned this, they're getting their revenge on like the small guy that doesn't have mm. the phone trees. And, and uh, yeah, I guess if you want to, you know, take on, you know, big business uh, and you want to include your local restaurant in, in sort of big business, well, then more power to your... I, I Maybe Google shouldn't be targeting at hair salons and dinner reservations. Maybe it should be targeted at big banks and insurance companies when you need to change address or something. That would be perfect for me. That would seem completely reasonable. Yeah, uh, that's that's an interesting <laughs> point. Anyhow, we are uh, we we are rambling a bit, which is fine. I think this might be a little rambly uh, sort of podcast. Something that struck me, and I think is just because you know this is what I wrote about this week, and and followed up a bit in the daily update. I think we'll get we'll get a little bit into both mm. both in part because I feel the outline of something here it's not fully fleshed mm. out in in my head, but something that really struck me in I think watching all these keynotes in, in close succession, and I actually wrote about this last week originally after Facebook's keynote is the attitude of Zuckerberg. And this goes back to the manifesto that he wrote last year. And mm. I wrote Manifestos Monopolies in response. And, you know, and we've podcasted about time multiple times this this sense that Facebook has some sort of solemn duty to push us to being a, you know, like a global community and all this, you know, when, when arguably they're they are certainly fostering community, just uh very <laughs> tribalistic uh one ones at that. This sense that they should be and that they should be making us do something or not. They should mm-hmm. make us view other sources of news. They should make us do this, make us do that. And I've pushed back on this a lot because a lot of the criticism of Facebook, to my mind, is so misguided, not because Facebook doesn't deserve criticism, but because the problem with Facebook is not that they are exercising their power in a way you disagree with, but that they have the power at all. Yeah, and I'm completely 100% with you here. And I think this is, I mean, in the spirit of intellectual journeys, and I reflected a lot on the disruption one last week. I mean, on on Facebook, I think we've both been on our respective journeys, but you're pushing me around, oh, we should just regulate this. And the fact that, well, if you're regulating it, then you're just transferring the power from one person to another person. And when I first proposed that, uh, I don't know how many episodes ago now, we had a different administration in the White House and 
now the idea that that power would rest uh, in order, it, it, the, the power to control what's going out and what's okay and what's not is resting anywhere at all, I think is a really good point. And I, I'm 100% with you. And I've taken the same sort of journey. I mean, the, the I was sort of comforted by, yes, Facebook has a lot of power, but they're sort of, you know, constrained by what's right for the business and, and, and whatnot. And, you know, what was so sort of alarming about the Facebook manifesto or Zuckerberg's manifesto a year ago was the sort of explicit admission that we're going to use this power. And yes, it was towards seemingly benign goals and and to make the world a better place and 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 foster unity and community and shared sense of facts and right and wrong, all of which sound great. But the the problem again is the power and and I was perhaps a bit lax in in not being concerned enough about the power because I didn't think it would be utilized, but the, but it's the fact the power exists at all. Yeah, after we talked about it, uh, Facebook fatigue. One of our readers, Penelope Kanzler, wrote in with a quote that I was trying to find during the episode and couldn't, and she just sent it through, and I was like, ah, there it is, and it was it went something. Oh, well, I've got it here in front of me. Of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under the omnipotent omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His his cupidity may at some point be satisfied, but those who torment us for our own goodwill torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. And that was C.S. Lewis. And I was like, that is, it's it's so true. It's this notion that we're doing it, we're doing what's best for you. It's terrifying. Yeah, I completely agree. But there's sort of one specific piece of that that I, that I want to sort of pick out this week. We, we, mm. We've had the debate about Facebook power and, and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. And, we, you know, we, <laughs> we have an archive if you want, if you want to hear that one, <laughs> to, to say the least. But, but in, in this specific case, it was sort of the implied idea that Facebook does stuff for you. And, and leaving aside what that stuff is or, or you know, whether we want to do it or not, I, there's still this idea of, of like Facebook do, doing it all. And and I actually, back in 2014, so this week in this article, I, I used the Steve Jobs Bicycle of the Mind clip. And I've used that mm. uh, on multiple times with Checkery. And the first time was actually in the context of Facebook as well. And that was back in 2014 when Facebook bought Oculus. And, and I was kind of contrasting the idea of you know, there being technology that sort of augments your life, that that helps mm. you do what you were already going to do and doing it better versus technology that sort of like overwhelms your life and like takes it completely over. And and my point there is I didn't buy that Oculus was the platform of the future because I sort of rejected, maybe it's a philosophical rejection, but I sort of rejected this idea that we are going to retreat into this sort of virtual world and 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 you know, VR to the extent it was a platform, I've always argued to be much more in the sort of like gaming, you know, mm-hmm. gaming sort of channel and movie channel, which is a very sort of a viable and real part of technology, but it's sort of an escapist sort of part and, and a smaller, still large, but a sort of smaller part of technology than this sort of day-to-day life augmentation aspect. And, and that's where I drew that, te- that that sort of distinction. And I, I came back to the Bicycle of the Mind thing this week, because not just Facebook, but this week uh, alone, there was the Microsoft and the Google keynotes, like in in, in succession. Mm. And the this just general tone and approach, and we get into why, like Microsoft has very mm. sort of good business reasons to be talking the way they are, but, but th- mm. it was so striking that the difference between the Google 
keynote and the Microsoft keynote. Microsoft was uh, could not emphasize again and again about the idea of of helping companies do the jobs that they were doing, and they like they were doing the jobs they were doing better. And some some aspect of that was computers doing the job, but it was always framed in a sort of you know, you can do what you're doing better and more efficiently than you were previously. Whereas mm. the Google framing, and not just the duplex thing, but also things like like Google Photos or they had self-driving cars is probably the most sort of stark example of it's not just we're gonna help you do the job better. It's that we're gonna do the job completely. And you and you can have more time to do other things, and they never really defined what those other things were. Again, that's not to say it's a bad thing. It was just if you watch the entire keynotes back to back, you just jumped out at me that there's a very sort of two very different framings of like the same sort of technology. I, I love the framing, and I love that the tension that you're drawing at. And I, as I as I read it, I was starting to try to dig into why that was. And, and for me, I think it came down to a question of when these companies were created in the context of the life cycle of technology. And if you think about Apple and Microsoft, computers back when those companies were created were much more in the form of tools. And that's the relates exactly to what that Steve Jobs clip. And we should put that in the show notes because if you haven't seen it, it really is phenomenal that the the way he uses the language. In fact, you, I really enjoyed it. You put two videos in, like an early version and a latter version when he polished it. And, and seeing that progression, as is often the case with people who talk a lot and, and use ideas, they hone it over time. And seeing that progression from uh, nascent through to fully formed and very smoothly delivered was, was fun to watch. But it's... Uh, that was back in a time when computers, like we, we were just out of the di- the digital equipment corporation era. We are just out of the the mini computer era. We're moving into the personal computer era. But these things are still luxuries in the sense that they're mostly used for production. You think about when Google came along uh, in the early two thousands. Computers were wait 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 nineteen uh, nineties. Late 1990s, you're absolutely right. Late 1990s, they were much more common, but they were still more used as a tool of production. They were still in more in the vein of bicycle for the mind. It, it's starting to shift. It's starting to be the case that computers are everywhere, the internet, and certainly Google's rise mirrors the rise of the internet. As the internet became ubiquitous, so too did Google. But you think about when Facebook was founded and the fact that uh, phones were starting to get everywhere and uh, their ubiquity has risen as computers have been used, whether you think about computers as a handheld device or as a personal computer, you think about them as a tool for consumption versus a tool for con- uh, a tool for creation versus a tool for consumption. And I think about it on that spectrum. And that, to me, explains the DNA of Apple and Microsoft, which is very much these are tools that we give to creators. We uh, and, and the difference between the two speaks a lot to also one is more of a personal creation versus an enterprise creation. And Google is kind of bringing that kind of approach, I feel like more to you think about gmail you think about finding the information you want that's more of that approach to the internet but facebook is starting to shift away from the creation aspect more into the consumption aspect where where these screens and the devices are more you sit back and you look at the device and and someone else has created stuff for you and 
you're just going to passively consume it. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think there's no question the sort of the companies are shaped by that time period they came up just as they shape the time period themselves, mm, right? There's totally. like, what is the interaction sort of effect there? And I think something that, that definitely did stand out to me though, is it, Microsoft and Apple, and it's fascinating because you always think of them as being the opposite, but in mm. so many respects, they really are very, very similar, right? And, mm. and, and the, and I think you kind of just made that point well, that they've always, they're, they're both personal computer companies. Like that, that's what mm. they do. And the way they go about building personal computers, and, and I'm doing a very broad definition of personal mm-hmm. computer. Like the, the phone is the most personal computer that we've had. Uh, right. but, 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 you know, Apple, we talked about last week, Apple's been consumer focused and that wasn't so great in the eighties and was really great in the, in the sort of two thousands. Mm-hmm. And Microsoft has always been sort of enterprise focused, but at the end of the day that, you know, the, the broad outlines of what they are and what they value and what they sell are are sort of you know on the same same side of things and it's it's interesting the the facebook and google comparison because I think your I was I wasn't quite sure where you're going, but I think your point that Google is is more of a sort of tool as opposed to Facebook is just kind of like digital TV in some respects. Mm. I think is a good one. I think there is more. I think there's more of a difference in Google and Facebook than there is between Microsoft and Apple in some respects. Mm. If you look at it with a certain lens, but but the other thing though, and the, the the similarity that I was sort of driving at though is their sort of relationship with uh, with like third parties, if, if that makes sense, and. When it comes to Microsoft and Apple, at the end of the day, what you use a computer for are the applications on that computer. Like if you had a computer with nothing but an operating system, it's not a very fun computer to use. You, like the applications <laughs> are what actually make it useful. Now, now mm. the the intricacies of how this actually works are you know very are, are very interesting. We we've I wrote an uh, I wrote an article many years ago about the iPad from product to platform that sort of mm. highlighted the fact that Apple is much more of a product company and Microsoft's more of a platform company. But the problem for Microsoft is they got to be a platform company basically by riding the coattails of IBM. And in this sort of new world where they had to first become a viable, mm. they had to first yeah. get users, uh, then it's been much more difficult for them. Whereas Apple attracts users by virtue of their product and that gives them the sort of right to be a platform and like you know i think i concluded that point like these companies would be so great together right yeah. but apple let apple build the product and acquire the users and let microsoft manage the platform and it'd be kind of a, a win-win for everyone in some respects but again that's very different from both facebook and google in that case facebook and google similar to a platform they win by attracting users. But the difference is there's not really any affordances they need to give to third-party suppliers. Like at the end of the day, people use Google because they want to use Google, right? Mm. And and Google goes out and finds everyone. And, and Google could do that because, as we've discussed multiple times in this podcast, when Google came along, the web was so open and there was so many things out there that Google mm. needed to ask permission. They didn't need to they didn't need to convince developers to come onto their platform. Web pages, by virtue of existing were on Google's platform. And then Google mm. gained all the users and all the web pages bent over backwards to, get, to make their pages even more attractive to Google and more likely to show up. And Facebook is sort of the exact same thing, where Facebook is such a self-contained product, right? The, the What's the moat? What's the lure of Facebook? It's your network. It's the other people that are on Facebook. Like Facebook's attraction is Facebook. And, and there's so much more sort of self-contained and not needing to interact with the pieces that go around them. They, they, they can just rely on 
broad-based incentives that force people onto their platform that I, I think it forms a v- sort of very different view of the world in that Facebook's the most extreme example. Like, Facebook is everything. And, and that's the sort of frame of mind and, and approach they take to interacting with everyone. And, you know, Google, I think, is certainly attuned to the fact that openness of the web is, is a virtue to them. But at the end of the day, Google is Google, and they have power because they're Google. And, and it's much more sort of self-contained in that. And I think that does shape how they think about what they do and their offering sort of in the long run. Mm, and this is, this is, it's so interesting. I, early on in, in what you were saying, you were painting Apple and Microsoft in broad strokes as very similar as personal computer companies and being the same. And I was finding myself agreeing with you and then thinking about 16-year-old James uh, would have his mind blown if he knew that uh, a, a few decades later I was going to be sitting on a podcast talking to you and agreeing that Apple and Microsoft are similar. But I, I think the point is is really a well-made one. And the fact that Microsoft hasn't had this school of experience, so to speak, of creating a product that's desirous, that people want to use. And that is the big difference between Microsoft and the other three players. The other three players have created products that people love and that is a fantastic it is a a fantastic starting point inception point for the creation of in fact it's an almost a necessary one for the creation of new products and platforms particularly consumer focused ones because that's almost the big bang that starts the platform afterwards it's interesting though i would almost say that as you were as you were speaking i was drawing a parallel between uh, Google and Microsoft, both of those players are the ones that would recognize the importance of external parties relative to Apple and Facebook. Apple and Facebook, I mean, like you said, Apple's platform, they they do it almost under sufferance, this idea that we're letting outsiders onto our beautiful device. Like it's it's it was, and Apple was reluctant with the iPhone. They wanted it perfect. Do we need other apps? And people weren't, initially it was just web websites. Facebook's, I feel in a certain sense, kind of the same way, at least in terms of the core product and putting aside Mark Zuckerberg's platform ambitions, the core product doesn't actually need anything else. And if you turned off elevating uh, external links in the newsfeed, I'm, I'm sure it would have something of an impact, but it certainly wouldn't be devastating to the product. Everything that's critical is contained within that's created by Facebook users. That's what gets people coming back. Whereas Google and Microsoft both absolutely recognize the value of the external players. Google, by virtue of the fact that, like you said, it was, it was born in an open era, uh, the open web, and it was able to go out and crawl. Microsoft, because Lord knows if peop- all people were buying with the operating system way back when uh, and, and whether people enjoyed using that, I'm not sure they'd have quite done as well during the 80s and 90s as they did. It would have it been Apple. But like you said, it's the, the developer side of things when it comes to the personal computer is absolutely essential for success. Yeah, so you, I mean, <laughs> there's a few things I want to unpack here. I want to get into, mm. I, I'm trying to, I feel like there's some sort of, uh, teasing apart of mm. aggregators versus platforms, which is kind of weird because mm. I've always referred to them as being the same thing. I think most people think of them as being the same thing. So that's one. And two, you kind of mm. got to this idea of there being another axis of separation, which is sort of open versus closed. And so, and let's take that one. I guess we can take that one first. I, so I drew this in the Daily Update. I didn't put it in the weekly article because it's not fully fleshed out. But this is like – it just – 
it's something that's sort of it's one of these ideas that I'm kind of like I feel the outlines of something here and I'm kind of trying to figure out what it is and putting the daily update first like I get feedback from people about yeah I'm mm-hmm. not sure about that mm-hmm. like that which is which is really useful and helpful and and but we'll, and we could this podcast be the same thing we can kind of work through it here so there's a famous thing called the political compass which is uh there's two there's two axes uh there's authoritarian versus libertarian and then mm-hmm. orthogonal to that, there's sort of the economic left and the economic right. And that, you know, there's sort of four quadrants that kind of represent the four ways of thinking about politics. The authoritarian left, the authoritarian right, the libertarian right, and the libertarian left. And mm. uh, and this has been used – you've probably seen this on Twitter a lot of times because it's always used in memes uh, mm. <laughs> to like showing the four different ways of thinking about something. But, but I did the same thing in this daily update. We're thinking about like if you have one axis is sort of aggregator versus platform. And by aggregator, I mean where their entire existence is predicated on owning the user relationship and the inherent usefulness of their product. And, and all sort of third parties come onto their platform because they have no choice, right? Right? And there's that direct connection with customers versus a platform being where there's a platform on which third parties sit on top, like third party developers or apps or, or, or whatever it might be. And both are integral to sort of the user proposition, right? At the end of the day, people use a platform because of the apps and app, not just apps like phone apps, like applications and line of business software and and all the sorts of things that actually make a computer useful. Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, again, I'm not. I, I'm still kind of fleshing out this distinction, but that's one axis. And the other axis is sort of open versus closed. And I think you're exactly right. Google and Microsoft are on the sort of open side. And by open, I mean, of course, they have closed components. I mean, no, Google's not telling you their search algorithm or or their, you know, their, their secret sauce that goes into, you know, a lot of their technology. But they greatly benefit and are very understanding from a strategic perspective that they are the most successful in a world where the more things are accessible because mm. they are the best at discovering and finding and organizing all those things. I mean, it's in the it's in the model, organize the world's information, right? That, that It follows that the more information that is available and freely available, the better they can be at organizing it. Where mm-hmm. uh, And Microsoft, the same sort of thing. Microsoft is always, it's funny, they're criticized for being closed because, you know, they have the, you know, they're closed source versus open source, for example. Mm-hmm. And, oh, this closed versus open thing is driving me up the wall because I did that article a few weeks ago about encryption and open versus closed, and I mm-hmm. wasn't talking. I wasn't talking about source, right? Like if I I've met if I met open source, I would have said source. What I mean by open versus closed is the degree to which. Th- th- Anyone can walk up and sort of plug into it, right? And mm-hmm. the Windows API was super open, and there was there was hundreds of thousands or millions and millions of app of applications that were written on top of the, the that that API, and and that that's what cemented Microsoft's hold. And anyone could sort of walk up and, and plug in. Now, were there parts that they were closed about and sort of in or very obtuse about, uh, and made it hard to interconnect in a way that you know, say for example, third party operating systems couldn't come along and use those applications? Yes, they were, and that you know, and that, a lot of that stuff came up in the antitrust cases that they had, but. At least on it, uh, at least one very important sort of vector. They were extremely open, particularly relative to a company like Apple, which, as we've talked about, has sort of been dragged, kicking and screaming into supporting mm-hmm. third-party applications. And yes, there's a ton of them on the phone, but through like their business policies, for example, as we've talked about ad nauseum, they, they never sort of wanted to allow a big competitor, or not a big competitor, but like a big customer like an Adobe, for example, to ever mm-hmm. be able to be built yeah. in a way that could threaten them in the long run. And and I think to their detriment. There's an article I wrote back in 2013 about this, why doesn't Apple enable sustainable business in the App Store? Mm-hmm. And I really think it goes back to they never wanted any uh, sort of developer to have that sort of power, whereas Microsoft's like, come along, by all means, build your 
multi-billion dollar business on our, on our platform because that is going to be to our long-term benefit. And that's one of the reasons why Microsoft has always been such a great sort of platform company. Anyhow, to bring this quadrant full circle, uh, the sort of aggregator closed uh, company is Facebook. They, they, like they don't want to, sh- <laughs> leaving aside what we've been talking about the last few weeks, they, they at least in theory, don't want to share. Their their power is their network. This is their totality of information that they have. Mm. And keeping that in a sort of closed garden and everything internal Facebook, they want to keep you on the face on, on the news feed and bring bring stuff into there. It, it's very different than Google. And one of the reasons why Facebook was even successful was because they were closed off from Google. Google mm-hmm. couldn't break into Facebook and get all the wealth of information that was there. And Facebook had exclusive data that not even Google had, unlike basically anyone else that that sought to be a sort of Google competitor. And, and so they're more on the sort of the close side and similar to Apple in some respects. But when it comes to this sort of platform aggregator idea, they're, they're, they're more akin to Google. So I'm with you 100% on the open versus closed, but it's interesting that you draw it as a uh, platform versus aggregator view of the world because I've always thought about it more as a product versus platform view of the world. That's always made uh, a lot more explanatory sense to me, like whether the company is a product-focused company like Apple or a platform-focused company like Amazon, for example. I, I guess that then begs the question, what about the difference between aggregators and platforms is making you want to dive in and use this as the framework, like the basis for this one of the axes? Well, I, I guess I would back up and say they're not mutually exclusive. I, I mean, I'm not mm. saying they should be on the same sort of two by two, or you should be. It should be a three dimensional two by two, which <laughs> I've definitely seen consultants try to pull off. Uh, <laughs> but 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 rather, it just depends on what aspect of the company you're looking at. And I think mm. this is where two by twos get really dangerous because they they inherently flat out something that is yeah. multi-dimensional and, and multi-part and like i said i was i kind of said in my my rambling sort of you know deposition there <laughs> is that is, as i just sort of kind of said like the there's parts of these companies that are open parts of them are closed for all of them and mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. idea of commoditizing your compliments is another way of saying keep closed what is yours and try to open up everything that that isn't <laughs> yours <laughs> so you can engender right. competition in those sorts of things so i guess my first sort of response would be uh, you, we, there's lots of ways to look at this and i don't think they're in opposition it's just you would want to take different lenses and different views to the issue to get a sort of totality of understanding because these are these are complex entities, and mm-hmm. to think that any one definition gets it completely right, I think is is mistaken. And, and you know, just to, uh, before I answer your question, I'm I'm, I'm kind of uh, uh, rambling. I've got to go go the long way around here. I mm-hmm. think the other thing here too is for me, and I I, I for something like aggregation theory, right? I, I'm very proud of it. I think it's very explanatory about mm-hmm. oh, the way the internet works and the way that it's different from the way the world worked before. I also think it's a mistake and one that would be tempting for me to fall into to think that that, that that's the end, that, that now we understand it and everything is explained by this. And mm. and I don't think I fall in that too much. But, the, you know, the bringing it up all the time, I think, could certainly lend that sort of idea. And in some respects, what was what's been interesting to me about this is sort of starting to tease that apart a little bit, because I've referred to aggregators as platforms. And, and the idea of there being Google and Facebook and Microsoft and Apple are all platforms is is, is sort of commonly accepted. These are all platform companies. And w- again, what stood out to me and was trying to tease that this week is there's something different, though, I feel, uh, about these uh, about these companies. And again, when I drew out 
both a platform and an aggregator. I think it's the relative position of customers to the sort of third parties and the power that gives mm. the company in the middle relative to those sort of th- third parties and, and their priorities and the things that result from that. So, so you know, I've used my usual aggregator drawing. It was kind of a funnel all going into one entity. And that entity has like a funnel on the other side. That's, that's all the customers. It's like the, the squeezing of the balloon. And if you're Google and all the customers start at, start on the internet by going to Google, then the, that's that's how the funnel sort of it, it forms itself on the other side in a natural mm. reaction. Like if you squeeze a balloon, it's not just one side of the balloon that sort of funnels down to the the point where it's being squeezed. Right, both sides do, and and and, and it, that's the way that it is for Google and for Facebook by owning the, the the customer. Everyone has no choice to sort of acclimate themselves to mm. to where they are. So so there's suppliers, aggregator, users, and that's sort of the order. Apple and Microsoft are different though and they're different in that in the, that sort of structure where there's users but then there's the third parties and then there's the platform sort of underneath but the way the payment works and the way the interaction works is the users actually pay both they pay the third parties and they pay the platform mm. and, but but the structure is different the the placement of the sort of the suppliers is different and i think the way and the, again it ties into the business model as i just sort of mentioned where where if you're squeezing it like an aggregator that's the optimal place to put ads. There could not be a better place in the world to put advertisements. If you're a platform and you have third-party applications sitting on top of you, you can't be an advertiser. This is why Android doesn't have advertisements, even though Android is more of a platform than an aggregator, and, and it has no advertisements because there's nowhere to put them. Like it, it, Because it, it, it's a place to let other applications shine, other applications sort of sit on top of it. And, and so I think there is some kind of distinction there. Maybe I'm using the wrong words to use aggregator mm. versus platform. Maybe Platform is a word that is so has such broad meaning that it's kind of like disruption, like it's almost lost the sort of like narrow meaning that it was intended to have. But th- I mean, this I mentioned when I was at that that University of Chicago antitrust thing, and it was about digital platforms, and it, it like right away this is something that stood out to me immediately. Like, there's a mistake being made in putting all these companies in the same bucket because the way that Facebook and Google interact with their ecosystem is very different from the way that Microsoft and Apple and Amazon interact with their ecosystem. Yeah, totally. I I mean, so a couple of big differences between the two come to mind. And I think perhaps in this instance, uh, and maybe I'll come to regret these words, but advertising is actually something of a red herring here. I think about it in terms of uh, A, who ends up capturing most of the value and also how suppliers need to behave in order to create value. I mean, in the instance of Microsoft, Apple, and Google, all three are reliant on external providers, not customers, but external providers in order to create more value than they would ever be able to create themselves. Now, Apple in particular is good at getting that value going in the first instance in terms of kickstarting. You think about the iPhone, amazing product, or the the likelihood that they're going to develop core applications in-house to develop this fantastic experience. But even, even they, as a personal computer manufacturer, most of the value that they create for their 
their users is actually, uh, I mean, when you think about as a user using the third, using an Apple device or using a Microsoft device, most of the value right now using an iPhone is created through applications that Apple had no party in and the developers had to plug in the, dev- it wasn't like Google where the web pages were already in existence and uh, Google came along and just made them more accessible. These had to be created for the purpose of Apple's uh, operating system, Apple's ecosystem. Same with Microsoft. These applications had to be created for the purpose of Microsoft's ecosystem. And so you effectively have uh, two suppliers as an end user in that sense, like you said, and the value is created and shared equally by those two parties because they create something new that otherwise wasn't there. Google, on the other hand, is able to just organize things better than they otherwise could. Those those websites were already out there. And as a result of not necessarily requiring other parties to do something in order for the search engine to work because the web was already open, they get to capture a majority of the value of what goes on on top of that platform as, as an aggregator. And Facebook's unusual in this sense, in that really, again, yes, there are links to outside content. And yes, that does drive a lot of traffic. But it's far from necessary for that platform or that as an aggregator to work. Again, they don't need anyone else to create anything new for the platform to be valuable. So they get to create, they get to capture a majority of the value and their users, which are the ones that came there in the first place, are a big part of creating that ongoing value that makes the platform itself valuable. Does that make sense? This is a situation where you, by coming in, perfectly articulated what I was trying to say. And I, I, that's, that's exactly right. Facebook is actually the ultimate example because Facebook could be valuable and attractive without there being any third party content at mm-hmm. all. It's completely self-contained. And, yeah. and, and this was, this ties into the realization I had in the context of Zillow and the idea of integration and, and how the sort of fragmentation of the supplier base is really important. Google was valuable because of third party content, but that 30 part content all already existed, right? Mm-hmm. And, and your point that develop, that applications have to be made for platforms is a very, very different sort of interaction between the platform and the third Mm. party as opposed to the aggregator and the supplier where the supplier is completely at the mercy of the aggregator and this Mm -hmm. is in your point about average red herring is spot on this is why things like airbnb and and uber and stuff like that are aggregators because the suppliers are complete commodities and they go onto the platform themselves willingly because it's the only way to reach the end users that they seek to reach. Mm. Whereas developers, developers kind of have a choice choice in the matter to to, to some respect. Now, it gets fuzzy. Again, these aren't like clear, distinct lines. But Mm. I really do think there is a distinction here between aggregators and the way to think about them. And and from a a policy perspective, from a strategic perspective, from understanding their opportunity perspective versus platforms that it's very, very different. I I think it's fair to say that this is one of these, uh, a square is a rectangle, but a rectangle isn't a square. I think, I, I think, Almost all the aggregators are platforms, but not all platforms are aggregators. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, 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 I don't think so. I, I, I think they're, they're really, they really are. I don't think it's a superset. What, what I guess I'm trying to drive at is this distinction between how dependent you are on the suppliers and whether you actually need to convince the suppliers or whether you need suppliers at all is the, is the 
the point at which you go from platform into aggregation land. Like, And the further you get away from needing those suppliers in order to be successful, the more you are as an ag- the more you're an aggregator. Maybe. I, I see what you're driving at. Because certainly both sides, both types are ultimately dependent on having end users, right? Like that's that's mm-hmm. the sort of that's what powers them. And to that extent they are they are similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess the thing that that kind of gives me a little bit of pause is the it's probably the degree of commoditization of the third parties, which maybe is the mm. same thing that you're that you're saying. And I guess maybe because I'm visually thinking about it, about where third parties are in the value chain relative to customers, where they do mm. have a direct sort of connection with customers. Like people use Photoshop from Adobe, right? And mm-hmm. and people who care about Photoshop don't. The operating system is much more incidental to it, right? And like like the, if you're a hardcore, this has come up in the context of like Apple, like the Mac Pro, right? If you actually need the capability of that level of computer, you will absolutely change the underlying computer because of the application that you need. Mm-hmm. It, it, like that, That's actually more important. And, and if you yeah. think about it, just sort of, and maybe I'm thinking too visually and, and sort of like uh, picturing the order of this value chain, but it just feels like it's it's kind of flipped a little bit relative to aggregators where uh, when it comes to an aggregator, the, the third-party stuff, it, it just the degree of commoditization is basically total and uh, in a way that it's not necessarily... Yeah, uh, on, on a platform. If, if, I mean, but again, maybe I'm drawing too fine a distinction when when it, well, it, it's probably much more of us of a spectrum. Yeah, well, I think what's interesting is the example you drew goes way, way, way back to the start of the conversation, which is uh, Photoshop is from an era when it was about tools as opposed to more and and production as opposed to and almost more of a B2B type thing where uh, it's a few people who want it a lot and will go anywhere for that specific tool versus as you get into the more modern era, and maybe this is just coincidental, but as I think about that spectrum and we started with Apple and Microsoft and then we moved to Google and then we got to Facebook, it's it's almost as if there's a relationship between as you get more and more consumer focused, the the degree of dependence on the suppliers lessens even further. Well, here's an interesting way to think about it. We talked mm. about in the context of Zillow how the sort of real aggregators, if aggregators is to disruption as in like a means to to change a value chain but it's not the end state like you mm-hmm. have to achieve some sort of integration and I kind of posited that that integration probably needs to go into the actual like transfer of money in that value chain mm-hmm. and it could yeah, be yeah, indirectly yeah. via advertising it could be directly like like where you're into the house buying process for example mm-hmm. or you're into the, mm. the the hotel booking process like in the context mm-hmm. of booking.com mm-hmm. and I was thinking about this as you were talking in the context of Netflix because what's interesting about Netflix is Netflix is not a com- I think I was wrong to focus on the commoditization point because t- TV shows are not necessarily commoditized I mean they're perhaps getting to that point there's so many of them but still people seek out specific shows and, and, mm, and, and, right. but why would i still think about netflix i would not think of netflix as being a platform i would absolutely think of netflix as being aggregator why mm. and i think it, it it's it's about that integration like they have fully integrated not just the sort of customer acquisition and relationship side of it but also the actual transaction and netflix takes care of paying sort of the, the other side whereas a platform it, it is like you pay Adobe and you pay Apple and you pay Microsoft, however it might flow. Like, it, it, so I, 
<laughs> maybe I lucked into this, but I put dollar signs on that graph that I drew for the article this week where money mm. is flowing to third parties and it's flowing to the platform. And it's it's more sort of the money flow is more complex in the yeah. relationships that are entailed. A platform is like multi- multiple relationships, whereas the aggregator, there's one relationship mm, and everything sort of follows from that. Yeah, that's a really good way of thinking about it. I mean, I, I think the uh, it gets muddied a little bit by the emergence of app stores. But if you imagine that that wasn't just done for user experience and centralization point of view, and that the iOS app store represents the same world and Apple's just effectively a very expensive visa acting as an intermediary, this notion that the money is flowing to third parties and there is something of a relationship with third parties, whereas a true aggregator has got all the finance oh, i'm the, sorry can, can i jump in can i jump in yeah no, no, i'm very excited about this i think you just really you you you, you touched on something super interesting we talked about how apple has been drag kicking screaming to being a platform because mm. they don't allow like business to thrive how can they control the business relationship of entities on ios it's because of the app store apple mm. has sort of imposed an aggregator type control method on what should be a platform you think about all the things that developers sort of chafe against it's not the Mm. apis per se it's not the apis aren't limiting developers from building something amazing it's the business model the business model is the problem and and apple like the the pieces are there to be a platform for ios but it's not it's sort of a stunted platform because the business model pieces have been superseded by an aggregation type business model where apple has commoditized all these apps and, and and sort of you know cut them off at the knees when it comes to building real businesses and yes mm. it's gotten a little better but i i think it's a the ship may have sailed a sort of bit and, and like that that's sort of like why is the app sort of different from sort of the traditional pc era why are the businesses so much smaller why are the only real sort of big companies ones that build these sort of free-to-play games and whatnot and i think that kind of gets at it an aggregator doesn't allow the creation of huge businesses down the value chain because the point is to commoditize everything. Mm, mm. Sorry, I interrupted you, it's, but that was no, 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 no. I'm glad you did. No, 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 no. I'm glad you did. I think, I mean, that's an excellent point. Thinking about it from the money flows and then thinking about uh, Apple's relationship, the way that Apple's inserted itself. And but to be fair, let's not forget that had. I mean, think about applications in the mobile world before Apple interjected. And I remember trying to download apps onto my Nokia phone and it being a very, uh, a, being a very janky kind of frontier bulletin board esque uh, kind of experience where I wasn't sure if I was about to uh, download a, a payload that was going to wipe my phone or do much, much worse. And the iOS store was born out of the fact that perhaps the experience did warrant centralization. And I think the point that it's gone too far and that in attempting to standardize the business practices, not just making the software trustworthy, but only allowing businesses to charge the consumers in a certain kind of way has imposed too much of a stringent control for what should be a platform that looked more back in the world of box software or whatever before this existed where it was uh, where it was much more of a bizarre like they, they've actually taken it too far yeah you know, I, and I again i would say two points one i agree and two mm. this isn't a sort of there's no value judgment here like, like i'm not mm. saying one is better or worse than the other and i think to your point why do aggregation models win 
they win because they provide a better user experience. And, mm. and this is a great example. The iOS App Store is a phenomenal user experience relative, not even just old mobile phones, relative to the PC. Like we were, mm. we got to the point where people wouldn't install applications on their PCs because they were scared of like viruses and they were scared of what, mm. like they were trained to not do any of this stuff. One of the reasons that the that internet and web apps became a thing is because people were, were, they were scared to install stuff or they were barred from installing stuff at, at, at their work. So th- there is a sort of in inherent trade-off here and again if you think about the the value chain if you're only if one entity is controlling all the interactions with the customer like it it Mm. goes it's like that uh, if you control everything you can provide a better user experience you can provide Mm. Mm. better security and all sorts of things again giving you trust the centralized entity the the trade-off is the centralization of power and the centralization of control that inherently follows from that to take this podcast sort of full circle whereas Mm. on the other hand if you foster a much more open environment where anyone can walk up and anyone can build a relationship with the customers, it's more dangerous. It's more risky. The user experience, by and large, is going to be worse. But this sort of opportunity for innovation and and things that can be built and new ideas that can come to fruition because there is no gatekeeper. There is no one entity controlling everything is is much larger. And and this is the sort of conclusion that I had is we do need both. And and to get too wrapped up in one or the other and that's why I don't make a judgment as to which one is good or which one is bad. I mean, I I guess I'm tying a lot of things together. In the article I was talking about we need the philosophy of computers doing stuff for us and also computers enabling us to do more and like Mm. computers doing stuff for us gives us time and opportunity to do more right like both pieces make sense and in the case of you want to get that into the into the underlying subtext of this article which is sort of aggregators platforms both do make sense both have benefit and and it really is sort of the yin and yang of of technology and uh, I, I one line of regret. I, said, I think I said they were in opposition to each other. They're not in opposition. It's more orthogonal. Like it, it's the mm. two axes that I said. And uh, I don't know. It, for me, it's just like uh, just an interesting. It's, it's it's an interesting way to think about it. Yeah, it totally is. It was funny that as you were describing the pros and cons, and you 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 want both. It was funny. I was going back to your picture that you described of the 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 political version of this the quadrant and thinking that we could almost say the same things like both have pros and cons and you think about the innovation and it's more dangerous and you can you can associate that with well I'm, I'm not going to do it here but as you think about it in terms of politics you can make the exact same assertions about the benefits of some versus the benefits of others it's not necessarily there's a right answer, an optimal one, though everybody has their beliefs and their preferences, but they just come with different sets of trade-offs. That's exactly right. It comes with different sets of trade-offs, and the the what matters those trade-offs depends on the lens you look at it, right? So mm. if, if we can tie everything in a nice bow, you, when you look at a problem in different sorts of ways, different things matter. If you look at it in the short term versus the medium term versus the long term, if you think about the impact on one group of people versus multiple groups of people versus mm. the interaction mm-hmm. effects of, of the different groups working together, like the, the, and this is why, I mean, at the end of the day, like the. There is no right answer. It's like talking about Amazon and Apple last week, right? There is no one right way to run a company. There is no one right way to do anything. It all, everything is a trade-off and context does matter. And, and is mm. that to say that I, I'm amoral and there's no, nothing, no right or wrong? No, not at all. But you can have an underlying principle and guiding 
way of thinking about the world and a sense of right and wrong and appreciate that depend, different situations, depending on the context and how you look at them, can have different answers. And a lot of times it's choosing the least bad or or it's choosing you know, ideally the best. But if you're not if you're not cognizant of the potential bad, you end up in situations like we've been talking about over the last few years where you, you do stuff with the best of intentions and the actual outcomes and impact end up being something that wasn't anticipated in, at all. Just like the conversation on this podcast. Indeed, indeed. Well, uh, like I said, I thought we were going to be a little, little more uh, exploratory here. Uh, I guess that's how I'm feeling. Was feeling about this topic this week in general. But I, th- mm. I think this, is, I think this is good. I, I love the. Um, mm, me too. So anyhow, uh, our thanks to WordPress.com for sponsoring this episode of Exponent. You can go to WordPress.com/slash/exponent to get fifty percent off your order. And I will talk to you next week. You'll quiz me next week. I, I, maybe we'll see. I mean. <laughs> We'll see. You nailed it this week. So I, I, I kind of feel like I had to quiz you until you just totally nailed it. And, and now I, I, I feel bad. I feel like I'd be picking on you to go back to the well. <laughs> Let's see whether you pick on me next week. Yeah, man. we'll see. We'll see. Have a good one, mate. All right. Talk to you later. Bye.